You are listening to the Quest for Wholeness podcast, a biopsychosocial spiritual guide. If you're interested in the human experience, health, wholeness, and how everything is interconnected, then you are in the right place. In this show, we will explore the interconnected realms of health that lead to whole human beings. My name is Lexi Burtz, and I'm passionate about holistic well-being, longevity, and I'm armed with an education in psychology. I'm so grateful to have you here with me. Welcome to a Quest for Wholeness podcast. Coming up on a Quest for Wholeness podcast. What what did we miss learning about mental health in literally primary school? You know, it's like that we're now kind of cobbled together as adults. Could we expedite that? And could that be a more efficient, quote unquote, public mental health tool for people to learn, um, learn some sort of a little bit of theory, a little bit of structures, and then for them to start kind of guessing and testing with, you know, clinically informed, empirically valid tools um, in their lives. Kev Kokoska is a psychotherapist and interdisciplinary PhD student. His clinical, creative, and academic work focuses on finding health in hard places. He works with incarcerated men through his private practice, Other Side Health, which creates mixed media mental health content and connects these processes through his interdisciplinary PhD studies at UBC. His last name also means Broody Hen. I met Kev at my first psychology conference last June, where I was presenting my undergraduate thesis. He was a panelist member, amongst a few others, who were sharing with the audience their path through psychology and where they landed with their careers. I was particularly drawn to Kev's story, which highlighted his unique path through academia and the work that he's currently doing. Before I graduated this year... A professor of mine was trying to drill into us the importance of networking and relationship building for opportunity. So, with her words in the back of my mind, I approached Kev and expressed how refreshing his point of view was. Shout out to you, Dr. Evelyn Field. Fast forward to the present. We're working on a few projects together, including this podcast. We didn't mention it in the episode as time ran out, but Kev wanted to highlight the importance of connecting. For him, he's unsure if the speaking engagements he does, which are often unpaid, are making a difference or reaching anyone. For me, it was about being courageous enough to connect with someone who was singing the same song as me. Sometimes it might feel like you're all alone, don't have your tribe or like-minded people around you, and I know how challenging that feels. But... If you listen closely and take the opportunity to connect with someone who you feel holds the same values as you, I'm certain you'll find the right people. Here we go with Kev. Hey, Kev. Well, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm just going to jump right in here. So you're doing your PhD right now in interdisciplinary studies and kind of living in that world. And this podcast is coming from this holistic approach. So I would love to hear you share a little bit about how those two ideas overlap. Yeah, thanks. It's such a good question, I feel like, because the first thing that comes up for me so often in psychology, like not only in my PhD studies, but in my clinical practice as a counselor, we differentiate between 
inter and intra, so like inter, like interpersonal between you and I, intra between me and me. So I don't even know if this actually is like the going definition on interdisciplinary and holistic, but to me, that's what first came up, which is holistic is something that is just in me, sort of like how my parts function together or don't. And then interdisciplinary is how my complex system is interacting with other complex systems. So to me, holistic is, feels more inward. And to me, interdisciplinary feels more outward, if that makes sense. It does. And what what you reminded me of there is is the whole intention of this podcast is to find wholeness through the, that holistic lens of all these different parts of ourselves. But what I'm realizing as I'm going through these interviews is that to have that wholeness, we need to be interconnected to other people. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah, so that's actually a good, yeah, sometimes in my uh, my brain just sees the images of this. So yeah, there's like sort of puzzle pieces of self, some of which we can take care of as individuals, but of course not all of them we can. So it's like parts of us have to inter- intersect with other parts in order to, to feel fulfilled or to feel whole. And that's a, actually a really interesting way to look at it. I know in interdisciplinary studies, sometimes there's like interdisciplinary is mostly the term that you hear. Sometimes you hear transdisciplinary. Sometimes you hear like multi-hyphenate. Sometimes you hear cross-disciplinary. I actually quite like cross-disciplinary. Again, just because of the images in my brain. Like I like diagonal lines. I often feel like it's good for me to remember in mental health to try not to come at it straightforward, to come at it from a Mm -hmm. diagonal. And so I just like, I like the prefix cross um, just exclusively for that reason, because it helps my brain a little bit better. But people would have different definitions for all those terms. And a lot of them would overlap, but not entirely. And it kind of almost depends on who you're speaking with, you know, which program they're coming from. They become almost like little niches or little brands. So what I'm trying to do right now is I'm early on in my PhD is to just kind of define for myself, what does this even mean for me to be doing, quote unquote, interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary work? And it seems kind of similar to what you're doing. It's like, yeah, holistic practices. We hear this word more and more, but what does it actually mean? That could range wildly person to person. 100%. And also, um, <clears throat> based in the category, field, discipline that they're in, that might have a completely different context. And I think that's, I, I love what you just said about kind of, um, you know, the cross disciplinary and all these different, different languages kind of for the same thing, although it may be thought of differently person to person. But you're absolutely right with this podcast. We're exploring all these different opinions contexts, perspectives um, that come together to produce this experience of wholeness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there is, it's sort of, for me, I guess the intersection of wholeness and interdisciplinary, like sort of what surrounds all that is like, it's almost like theories of complexity, right? Like this happens a lot in school at at UBC people. And sometimes in my uh, opinion, get, too much in the weeds on that, but there's sort of like these larger systems that are even holding that, right? So that's where it gets really interesting is like developing, um, I guess a way for us, like one of my professors said, um, in the future, we'll all have to have our theories of complexity on our CVs. 
which I thought was a really interesting thing to say because it's like, how do you manage Lexi? You know, you're getting, you're intersecting with all these different interesting people and their ideas and their contacts. Some of them you resonate with more than others. Some of them you'll adopt, some of them you won't. Like, how do you hold all that? Like, what's the scaffolding that's going to hold on that? Uh, There's theories for different theories for this. And so the professor was just like suggesting that this is important territory to step into because um, as things, as fields start to kind of meld together, bleed together, it becomes very important to understand for ourselves. Otherwise, it can just feel like a overwhelming, you know, cluster. And then we tend to want to move away from that, which we're overwhelmed by. So to come closer to it, like you're doing, trying to invite these conversations and find some connective tissue, that I think is a really good practice, no matter what you call it. Yeah. Yeah. And what I, what I heard you say there is as things start to melt and kind of come together more, it can become more complex. So it's important important that we have the language to understand like where we're coming from and what values we hold in that kind of complex interpretation or perspective. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And for complexity, again, whether or not you want to use complexity for you replace it with, you know, psychology or what, or just self or whatever, like to not be, um, like to not be deterred by the complexity because it's, it's always going to be complex. Like it's, it's always going to be another nook and cranny you could get into. This happens a lot at, at UBC. I call them side missions. It's like I'm on this PhD path and then a, a classmate of mine says something interesting that's about their research and I'm tempted to get, go on a side mission, which I have to be very mindful of that because I'm curious, but that's going to take me off my track. And this is true in life, right? Like we're on a path. We have these certain systems set up. We maybe have some things we're working on, but it can be very easy to go to the new shiny thing, you know? So it's mm-hmm. like how to, how to balance that and hold that. If we're okay with being complex creatures, creatures, if we're okay with being a bit more messy, that I think is like a super skill to be able to like hang out, you know, in that space. Oh yeah. I couldn't have said it better myself, to be honest, being okay with the the mess and the chaos and, and discomfort. What I'm also hearing, you know, as we're talking about this is kind of language development for kind of where we're coming from. And I think language is a tricky one, especially with mental health, because there's um, just labeling and diagnosing, misdiagnosing, self-diagnosing, which is a huge thing right now, kind of in the social media world, but we'll get into that mm-hmm. too. So I want to talk about destigmatizing mental health and making it more accessible through layperson speech because uh, obviously you have significant training and experience in psychology. I'm at a much lower level, but we understand what these words mean and the values that they hold. But for the layperson, they might not really understand these words and it can be really confusing for people to start working through their own mental health or even communicating where they're coming from. So I'd love to hear you. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about demystifying mental health language. Yeah. So I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is, so part of my PhD involves work in the prison system with incarcerated men. And sometimes what I do as like, um, it's almost like a relational intervention or like a group dynamic building exercise. I'll literally bring into the prison um, examples of uh, academic literature written about 
incarcerated men and their health and their mental health and everything else. And just to read it to them, this is an academic jargon. This is like from, you know, peer reviewed journals. It's hilarious because they think that writing is so funny because it's so stupid to them. Like they understand what it means once yeah. we unpack it, but just on its face, the way that that's written, like is, I understand it academically and it's written for other academics, right? So it's not supposed, the, the intended audience is not the community it's serving. And there's obviously value in that because we could, you know, a, a person who's never set foot in a jail could have very interesting theories around incarcerated men's mental health. And, it, and going back and forth on that could elicit some really important practical tool. But I'm more interested in sort of the bridge between really between institutions, right? The university as an institution and correctional systems as institutions. And so to because I'm right in, in both those worlds, if I bring the literal paper to the prison and show it to them, the first thing you get is laughter. Um, like a, a more specific example is we, there's a thing, and they kept using the phrase emotional discharge. And just that's a funny word, discharge. Like it's like, but we, I know <laughs> that it's like we're processing emotion, we're letting emotion out. They find it hilarious. And then when we talk about it, we can understand that how it's been written in the article is literally the same stuff that we're talking about in the group when I meet with the guys in the prison, but they just put their own language on it. So what I try to do kind of on the back end of those conversations is um, connect the dots with them to go, you know, when you came in here, so-and-so, and you were telling me about, you know, how you wake up super lethargic and you're, you're, you're late to count because you don't get out of bed in time or whatever. Like that's this piece of this article. So, it's it's it can be empowering but we're doing it sort of in reverse right so let's take what's important to you right now in your life or let's take the barriers to health right now and let's start there in your language and then later we can reflect and rationalize and theorize that's that's what i'm more interested in is going right to the source the community trying to serve using their language speaking to them in language that is respectful and loose and um you know just uh like appropriate for that context and then i'll go translate it back into academic speak i'm way more interested in that sort of diagonal line than the other way which is sort of top down right here's the best researchers here's what they have to say and then we have to translate it i think personally it's better to get it right from the source um, obviously both have value and it's kind of, this is what I'm doing right now. And my PhD is trying to find balance between the two. So that's a specific example as far as my work with incarcerated people goes. And then in the general population, since COVID, especially there's this explosion in like mental health lingo. And there are like trend, like literal trending terms, right? It's just like, it's like literally trending on social media to say narcissist or gaslighting or, or whatever else. Um, and so it's almost like the textbooks have just sort of exploded and people caught some of the words. And sometimes they're using them appropriately. Sometimes they're not. And sometimes I can't even say, like it's above my pay grade to even speak on what some of the things that these young people are exploring. But me personally, by and large, I like the idea that people are engaging with the terms and trying it out, even if it's not exactly right. Like it would be better if it were, but I think to get to that place where there's almost like 
sometimes I think what would be the peer reviewed version of TikTok, right? Where there would be some sort of like, um, some sort of check mark or something delineating that this information is accurate. Because I find it very interesting to hear somebody who recently learned a term um, to hear how they apply it and what they think it is. Because there's often gold in that. And it's unique to my ear because I'm used to hearing it in a very clinical sort of DSME type of way. And so I find a lot of value in people sort of taking these terms, kind of breaking them down, trying to make sense of them. Sometimes it's a little bit accusatory and like everybody's ex now is a narcissist or everybody's getting gaslit. Some people are and some people are engaging with narcissists, but I, I, I'm more interested in like the process of, of people trying to kind of come to terms with some of these terms, you know? Yeah. And what I what I heard from you there talking about your work with incarcerated men and then also just, you know, in the points you're making about kind of the space we're in with social media and mental health terms is is, as you mentioned, going to the community or the people that are experiencing this thing and hearing what their actual experiences are. Um, as you mentioned, the DSM there for people who aren't familiar with that, that's the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders. And that's kind of the trademark for diagnosing, categorizing and uh, labeling people with uh, different mental health disorders. And it just made me think of too, you know, that's how these terms change or evolve, or we create new terms that better outline and um, encapsulate people's experiences. If we think about homosexuality, for example, that was in the DSM for a long time, and now it is not, right? So I think mm -hmm. this process of engaging, tearing apart, chewing on it for a while gives it meaning and evolution. Totally. And I... I have a note somewhere in my phone. I've never done anything with it, but I've often thought about like, what's the people's DSM, right? Like the DSM mm -hmm. is for clinicians, but what is it for the people? And I think almost that's what sometimes social media is becoming. Or there's also this website, which I really like a lot. It's called Quora. And so people post questions and the community answers it. And I follow some of these mental health threats. I mean, it's the internet. So it's sometimes it's total chaos and it's mean. But a lot of times it's people with lived experience of like a borderline personality disorder, say. So somebody who's was in a relationship with somebody with BPD and feels hurt by what happened in the relationship, they go on there really to kind of pop off and complain about their ex. And then some person from somewhere in the world who also has BPD will respond and say, you know, what you might think about is like what they might have been experiencing is X, Y, Z. And there's some sometimes really nice exchanges and myself as a clinician, I really value like the lived experience. So it really um, contextualizes the DSM, which that stuff's not in the DSM, but no, but it's not supposed to be either. Like that's not what the document is meant to do. But there's something about those two talking to each other. It's like there's the diagnostic criteria and then there's like the lived experience. And because the diagnostic criteria is like, it's, it, the lived experiences can look so different between people who have the same, who meet the same criteria, right? As you're aware. And, but this is, I think what sometimes social media is not aware of. Like they treat like, this is a cookie cutter thing. If somebody displays this trait, it must be this. And they just don't have the nuances because they don't have the training. So, which totally makes sense. But I, I, I would, I would personally privilege the lived experience first because that's where it started to begin with. They didn't make the DSM, out of their heads like they're they're responding to actually how people are showing up 
and it's an imperfect document. I had this teacher in my, um, when I was doing my master's in counseling psych and the first, it was a, a psychopathology course. So it was made around the DSM and she held up the DSM on the first day of class. And she goes, this is a political document. And she threw it down on the desk. Like, so she, she respects it because her, her profession requires her to engage with it, but she just, um, she didn't want us to like be, treat like the Bible, you know, which is good teaching. Mm. And, and, and at that time, the DSMs are expensive to purchase. So when you, you're a student, you got to purchase the DSM. It's like the most expensive textbook. It's not a textbook, but it's the most expensive book you got to buy. And I, I bought a bootleg version of it. So it was like off the internet. It was like the color was a little bit off and it was like they photocopied the pages and put it in. But I really felt good about this because it sort of takes it down a notch to see it like somebody illegally <laughs> repurposes and they're selling it online for a fraction of the price. That's, I think, good. That's how it's supposed to be treated. You know, treat it a little loose. There's some spelling mistakes. You know, it's just like, it's not the finely polished document that you would get, you know, uh, at a clinician's office. But so some of that stuff is really nice for me because it's like, I'm often in the middle of these two spaces where I value the clinical knowledge. I'm always trying to grow that, but then I'm also trying to grow my understanding of, you know, the communities of, or the individuals that are living with the diagnostic criteria that, you know, you learn about in class. So I guess I would love to just note first that um, it takes training to use the DSM. This is a book um, that people spend years and years and years um, learning how to properly use because a lot of the language is very similar and a lot of um, diagnoses will have the same kind of components to them. So I think there's been some things that I've seen on the internet where people are going and observing that document um, themselves and trying to understand which, hey, there's value in that, but to be diagnosing oneself um, with a, such a disorder. It, 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 there's training that's involved in that to, to, to use this manual properly. So just side note. And um, yeah, that's that's so cool that your teacher was just kind of um, not holding it up as, as a Bible, right? Because I think, mm-hmm. you know, we know everything about mental health and it's in this book, but we're, we're all very complex, diverse humans. And while this is a specialized subject area, we don't know everything about humanity and mental health and, and the brain even, right? So I think that's another important uh, caveat. Absolutely. Yeah. And it will be interesting to see back to the, the TikTokers, because they're engaging with those terms at such a young age, you know, relative to me, I didn't learn those. Maybe I learned them in grade 12 or something like in like a psych course in grade. I think that's when I started to like hear some of those words, what I, I would have dared at the time to like try to use them in everyday speech or like try to make sense of them. So that's the part that I think is cool. We have this generation that knows all these words and once they are grown, and they engage more with life and our understanding of the human experience grows and they get more training. Like it's going to be really cool to see what they're able to do. They're going to be able to do a whole lot um, because they're way ahead of the game. So, so sometimes I tell, so um, when I was growing up, I got a younger brother and I can remember this time where my brother learned the F word and he just, he had heard adults say it, but he had no clue what it meant. He just knew this is a very powerful word because Every time somebody says it, it like people are gassed or like something happens. Like this must be in a very important word. So sometimes he would just sort of take me to the side 
and just like into to come come into my room and or come you know come into the treehouse and he would just look at me and just say the f word just the f word because he just wanted to like get the reaction but he had no clue what it meant this is a little bit similar to some of these mental health words they don't fully have the nuance around them but they know they're powerful and social media is perfect for this right like it's going to be a better performing video if you say the buzzwords or you talk about an uh, experience with your narcissist ex than it would be if you're talking about the nuances of that right so that it's just sexier to have the label sometimes and these are striking labels and some of them are very salacious and they make movies about them and it's just like you know the, it, it it feels kind of similar um and the words do have power and we have to respect that but it has to kind of come over time to be kind of injected with some gray area qualities or some nuances you know yeah what i what i he- was hearing there too was you know before we have language and vocabulary as children we know what's going on based on feelings based on the feelings and the actions of people around us and that's kind of what i was uh thinking of when you mentioned your brother and and the f word right it's like you don't really know what this means but you can feel the emotions that are embedded when this word is used and as you mentioned the reactions that's eliciting in other people yes cuz i think a lot of times when people are doing those videos about you know narcissist or just stay with narcissist narcissist axes sometimes what they're really saying is like this is hurtful to me like i was hurt by this person whether or not they're narcissist i don't know i can't say like there's multiple levels of me not knowing because even if i did know the person i don't ha- i'm not again it's above my pay grade to even understand it that's how that's some, sometimes how wide the gap is but with the to your point what the person is saying is i'm trying to make sense of this hard experience that i went through And so that I think is really cool. Um and of course they would be reaching for labels to try to do that. That's what language is for, but there's something about like what's the underlying emotional conversation in that because you know it's like the text and the subtext. Like what's the subtext of what's being said here? And that's obviously a big um a big therapy thing. Like certainly the way that I was trained, it's like you're listening but it's sort of like i guess quote unquote advanced empathy you're you're hearing them but you're also trying to hear this other side of the conversation as well yeah i i'm doing a little bit of volunteer research at the addictive behaviors lab at uh university of calgary here and we're working on uh cannabis addictions and what people are saying isn't always what they mean right it's like well it's not really a big deal to me it just makes me sleepy but then there's all these other effects that it's having on their relationships or health or anything so that's a good point um i also think we've been tiptoeing around this and i know this is something you're really passionate about so i would love to get into public mental health i think in canada we're really fortunate to have you know public healthcare in our shared vocabulary public transit but i don't think public mental health is that um commonly known to people so i'm going to let you take it over from here Yeah, so I mean, this is an example of public mental health to me. It's sort of like cuz typically for me, mental health is more private. And even in even in Canada with the our benefits, right? Like it's extended health benefits. So it's not sort of basic health benefits. So it's sort of this other thing that's a little bit outside of 
of going to your doctor for a checkup, right? It's like, it's, it sort of seems more mysterious and it's happens in confidence and privately, which all that stuff is important. Um, but for me, what was happening was over time, as I was practicing as a clinical counselor, I would realize that there's, you know, there's some people that are in crisis or they're dealing with a very specific mental health thing and therapy is the most appropriate thing for them. But even that's hard, right? Even if therapy is the most appropriate thing for you, it doesn't mean you, you have the access to it. doesn't mean you have the benefits. doesn't mean you can find a, a person who's a good fit that has availability. Like there's all these other barriers, but that's one group. But then there's this other group. And sometimes like a good example would be sort of a university undergrad, right? Generally quite high functioning, but occasionally some something happens in their life. Like they have a breakup or they do poorly in a course or they have lots of anxiety during exams or something like this. And for that group that's not in crisis, they would come, reach out for therapy. It's not a bad thing to do. But the first maybe three to five sessions would start for me to feel kind of similar. And I realized, oh, this is a bright young person. And what they've come here to do first is try to learn almost like mental health 101. Because I could tell that they want they want the support. But what they really want is to like, gain the skills for themselves so they don't have to come back here because it's sometimes it's even a waste of their time. They're a student, right? To block off the time to go to therapy when they could be studying. They were just trying to kind of like get the machinery. And that's what I thought was cool because there's some good general knowledge about, you know, mental, emotional, spiritual health. But then it was like a collaboration around what what's the best sort of bang for their buck for them, right? How does, is this going to be applicable to them? I'd often compare it to like um, the nutritional guides on foods, right? Like in the cereal box, it tells you like, this is, you know, X amount of your daily sugar, but it's like, whose body are they talking about there? They're just, they have some sort of generalized thing. Mental health is kind of like that. There's all this advice online. There's all these skills, but how do you actually apply it to yourself? That's sort of a different piece. So that really got me thinking, going like, okay, we could probably expedite this if there was some sort of um, public education piece, like what, what did we miss learning about mental health in literally primary school? You know, it's like that we're now trying to cobble together as adults. Could we expedite that? And could that be a more efficient quote unquote public mental health tool for people to learn, um, learn some sort of a little bit of theory, a little bit of structures, and then for them to start kind of guessing and testing with, you know, clinically informed, empirically valid tools um, in their lives. So so then they would have a foundation and then they would know the difference when something happens between, oh, when this happens, I can take care of this in my community and with the skills I have for myself. But when it's above that, then that's when I need the more specialized help and in, in, in potentially with a therapist. So it's just sort of separating a little bit. What parts of this could we be doing collectively based on the knowledge we already have? Because if you look at it like that, it's atrocious that this is not more freely available. So why are we withholding it? What's the deal there? Um, that's the kind of stuff that I'm interested in. So that's loosely how I talk about public mental health um, because there's, there's public health, like that's a known discipline, but then counseling psych where I came from, it doesn't, you know, connects with public health in some ways, but 
the teaching element of it doesn't always carry over. But now we're seeing a little bit more like um, therapists be teachers online because that's it's part of how they're branding. It's part of how they're marketing. So that's kind of nice. But it is much more to me just like they're kind of like throwing stuff out that's related to their own therapy practice. I wonder what sort of the collective like hive mind of all those therapists, what would they say are the most valuable mental health 101 tools? And is there a way for us to, to share that um, in a manner where consumers or the public can trust that while not all of these things may work for me as an individual, they're all clinically sound to the best of our current knowledge. And I know you've mentioned a few times about, you know, kind of academia and even, you know, the professional psychology world living in the silo. And then there's everybody else here that we're trying to help, right? But they're very different spaces and can just become echo chambers, right? Of the same ideas back and forth without any actual implementation. And while it's super cool, especially with COVID, I think it was very beneficial that we had this online counseling space become more available to people as well, especially in rural communities. Um, as you mentioned, that's still very much rooted in their practice and where they're coming from and isn't necessarily for the public health. It's increasing access, but isn't increasing the public approach. And when we have an injury, we can go to a walking clinic and they'll treat us there um, that may, we maybe not maybe may not need to go to a hospital. So we're getting that acute first aid. Right. But yeah. in Canada specifically, there isn't anywhere to get that emotional first aid instead of going straight to counseling. So I know this is a space um, that you're thinking of and working in, which is pre-therapy, which is similar to what we're talking about, right? With just this kind of basic access, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's almost, yeah, it's like the middle space where, because to me, if we had people funneling through some public mental health or pre-therapy space, then it would be valuable also for the system, not only for the individual potentially, because then the system, it would, it would allow the people who need to, in a certain way, maybe jump the line, so to speak, because maybe somebody's reaching out for therapy, they're taking the place of somebody who's in more crisis, when the former person would benefit from just kind of doing a, a small course or just having somebody talk in real relatable terms uh, about some tools or skills that might be helpful to their specific concern that they're reaching out about. That, to me would allow for, it's not, not like it's going to fix the system, but it might allow it to like flow a little bit smoother because especially this time of year, right? We're in, we're in December and people, again, in Canada, who have extended health benefits, which is not everybody, but who do have extended health benefits for therapy, they've sometimes just been sitting on them, haven't used them, so they're trying to burn through them at the end of the year. So already the structure is set up to not even, because ideally that's, I mean, that's a much more pre-therapy structure. So if they want some people reach out this month and say, I've got four more sessions and then my, my benefits re-up. Could I do, you know, two sessions a week? They don't, well, I don't know if they really need it, but they, they're just trying to use the benefits. So they, they're coming not necessarily with a specific concern, just coming because they know mental health is important. They want to learn some information. So sometimes, and there's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes for me, I feel like, oh, this could be almost a really good, 
if there was a really good podcast, like this podcast could fill some of those blanks or really good audiobook or really good online content that actually might be more useful because they would be getting the information they desire and it would save the space for somebody who maybe really needs it because it sometimes can be ever since COVID, I mean, it's, it is harder to find good fit counselors. So mm-hmm. there's also, there's also a systemic component as well that I, I think about because as you continue on in this profession, you just, you, you know, you hear about some of the barriers, but then you experience them even on sort of my side of the street as a clinician. And sometimes it is frustrating. Or sometimes you can see people kind of slip through the cracks because if they can't, if they don't have the benefits or they can't afford it, there's other places that they could access for free, but those places have really long wait lists. So they just kind of get lost in the system. And there's not many people that really have a clear picture of, of the system. I don't feel like I have a clear picture of the system a lot of the time and it's changing so much. So if I don't, as a clinician, Think about the person who's just in the community and then think about a person in the community who's also in crisis. They can't be expected to uh, sift through and find the needle in the haystack, right? Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the systemic side of the pre-therapy and then the pre-therapy, which is I think of it just like as a subset or my specific piece of public mental health is just a way of amalgamating things I've learned over the years because when people reach out, you know, off just via email, they'll tell you a little bit about what they're reaching out about. And it's, it's only so many different things, right? So it's just like, there's, there's trends. So if there's trends to this over time, then I could provide some zero cost to consumer information about how you might start to go about that. It's not going to replace therapy, but it's just going to arm them with something. It's like an active waiting room almost, right? You could be in a, in a waiting room, so to speak, metaphorically, and have some work to do. So by the time it's time to start therapy, the, the process has already been a bit demystified and you already have some sense of what to expect, you know, and then it's just about applying it to you specifically. I can't even communicate well the absolute importance of that too, because when there are these long waiting lists for people to get access to mental health resources, most people who really, really actually need that service are struggling in that meantime and don't have anything to help themselves. And creating programs like that is, in in my opinion, instilling agency, self-efficacy in the person that, hey, like I am responsible. And if there are resources that I can access, I can start to help myself right now. And knowing that there is somebody else to help me down the line, having that to look forward to. And that that's just invaluable, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the agency piece that you're alluding to, that's, to me, that word, that's becoming a bit more of a trendy word on in the clinician side about, like, we have to be cautious about dependency in the therapeutic relationship. I mean, we've always known that, but now it's much more because it it is, like, the world is trending much more public mental health because it's just, it's you hear it referenced way more than you used to before COVID. And so there is something empowering about that, but there's also something that's confusing about that. Because there's so much out there, it can be hard to know where to start. Um, but it, I think the agency piece is very important. It's important to have agency. And then, you know, as you're developing that, it's, it can also be very helpful to have a therapist. It doesn't even need to be a therapist. Sometimes it can be, you know, a colleague or, or a friend or a coach or whatever, just to have somebody to reflect back because we're in our experience. We may be growing, but we may not notice it yet, but somebody around us might. So if, 
you have somebody close to you that is aware you've let them in on what you're working on. There's some accountability there. There's some agency there. And then there's some potential for there to be a feedback loop of like, oh, you know, three months ago, I observed you to be like this. Now I'm observing this. Like how much of that are you aware of? How much of that do you resonate with? And then once we can like, once our brain can like reflect on the new experiences that our, you know, body is having, that's often when it kind of, to, to me, kind of clicks in. Um, yeah. So, but there's just, there's, we're in an age right now where people seem more o- open to being creative around mental health and there's all these different options and that's good. Some of them have seen better than others, but I like this sort of innovative spirit because the old way of like the classic, you know, hour session, one, one time a week or whatever, like that, that still works for many people, but that's just, it just isn't necessary. Like it's okay to be flexible and zoom even has opened that up to where people can do shorter check-ins and just more maintenance, right? It doesn't always have to be the standardized way. Um, so that's the spirit of that is something that's really exciting to me. And I guess the pre-therapy stuff is my little like offering in that regard. Yeah. And I think what you mentioned there too is to get the value and I'm not saying use your friends as therapists, right? We need to respect people's boundaries and um and ask for their consent when sharing things if they're, you know, pretty big. We don't want to burn out our friends and families, but it doesn't always need to be this trained counselor, psychologist, therapist person. We can cultivate these really strong relationships and connections to help our psychosocial, spiritual, biological health in this way too, which again, I do think is a a pre-therapy piece because we live in a hyper-individualistic society in North America here, and we aren't necessarily taught how to cultivate those relationships well. So I think that's another thing that we can add into that pre-therapeutic <laughs> mental health, public mental health spaces is, is teaching people to how, how to have these strong bonds and relationships. But before mm-hmm. we wrap up here, I would love to hear you talk about uh, your own mental health and how you go about monitoring, protecting, and and nurturing that. Well, it, one of the ways is actually similar to what you were just saying around sort of the non-therapist close people close relations in our life like i'm really big on if i know what i'm working on maybe it's a maybe it's self-work maybe it's you know academic work maybe it's business work if i have clear goals and then i have people in my life that are close to me doesn't need a big number doesn't need to be a big number of people that also are aware of what i'm working towards for example, when I supervise newer therapists, I, I have this thing I call it the best friend test where they're seeing clients and I'll say to the therapist that I supervise, you know, because we know in counseling the importance of having a very clear, concrete goal. Um, but what I say to the therapist is try to think of it like if the client were to tell their best friend, they don't have to tell their best friend about their therapy experiences, but if they did, how would they describe the work that you all are doing together? Because sometimes it's, it, you can be in therapy. It can still be mysterious because it's like, what are we, what are we doing really here? They keep asking how I'm feeling, but how does that connect with what I'm trying to do? I think that should be as crystal clear as possible. It's already as complicated as it needs to be. So I try to apply this sort of best friend test in my life where just with a couple of people, like partner and a friend, I try to like loop them in on what I'm up to. 
so that it gives me a more sort of all hands on deck approach to like my health and my mental health. So if somebody close to me knows that I'm doing these three very deliberate things to try to balance my academic life and like fully shut off and have a total non work day, which can be hard sometimes, then they, there's a better chance of me doing that because there's somebody I'm accountable to. And there's also somebody that's actually going to check in with me about it. So I really feel, I mean, I've tried to apply this to myself, but I really feel this is an important thing for the people too, to go, if we're really serious about say like changing an attachment style, which is totally possible. Like we can move from insecure attachment to earned secure attachment, they call it. Like it's way better to have a more all hands on deck approach than just you and your therapist. But again, that's, it's, it's dependent upon the person. You don't have to do it. But to me, if you were going to therapy around attachment stuff, it would be advantageous and it could accelerate the experience if there was, again, trusted people who are close to you and you were having conversations about this is what I'm working on in therapy and this is how I think it might be showing up in our dynamic. Not to say they have to become your second therapist, but just to have that conversation so they're aware of it too. So they become this sort of, you know, it's already a loved one, but it's somebody you can like really practice the early reps on this and it's because those can be clunky so it's different than just going out into the world and trying to just build newly secure attachment with new people that you meet lean on the trusted people in your life which forces also for you to reflect on who those people are and i believe it doesn't need to be a big number of people this is also a social media thing but people's like how many friends do we really have i mean depends on your definition of friends but if it's just a couple close ones i think those are huge if they're open to it and if they have the ability to do it, those are huge relational opportunities to sort of apply what you're working on. But it takes the vulnerability on, you know, on my end or on a client's end to be willing to share with people close to them, um, you know, what they're working on, what they might be struggling with and what they're striving towards. I love that we're ending on this note because we started talking about the interdisciplinary approach and holistic approach. And we were talking about kind of the holistic, you know, uh, the perspective that that's more internal and then intra or inter is more between people. So I think we've encapsulated well the importance of cultivating both of those aspects for well-being and health. So as we wrap up here, I want to ask what piece of wisdom can you offer our listeners as they embark on their quest for wholeness? So for me, and this is tagging on to my last response, what I do, and again, I don't do it every single day, but what I strive to do, what I'm doing, I'd say the majority of the time these days, once I know, like once I have a clear goal in mind, like the focus I was talking about sharing with uh, people close to you, and this is the intra-psychic thing again, where I try to, have ways to think about it that aren't just, okay, I gotta, I'm trying to, you know, be less anxiously attached. I try to think, what is it? What's the emotional experience? What's something like that's maybe symbolic about it? Like I often use the symbol of like breaking chains. Like that just works for me. Like if I think about, oh, I'm trying to break this behavioral chain, that image works for me. I try to have like songs that are associated with it. Um, I try to think about like when I'm, when I'm doing well at this goal, like well, how does it feel in my body? So I just try to get it from all angles and that's holistic, right? So I didn't even tend to leave this back in so well, but I'm doing it. 
So because <laughs> it's it's to start the day, it's kind of like a deliberate practice. It's a deliberate holistic practice, really, to start the day and connect with what your focus is. It doesn't always need to be a mental health thing, but it could be. And I, this is the interdisciplinary too. It's like not just in a sentence and especially not just in a textbook sentence. It could be a lyric from a song. It could be a color. Earlier I was saying how I pictured things on a diagonal. Different things work for different people. And I think it's underrated how much we rely just on the traditional approaches to mental health where you could, you could see a film that really moves you. That to me is therapeutic especially if you know specifically why that moved you and how that fits into your life. Sometimes it just moves you. You don't even know why, but if you can know, that's a very beautiful thing. Cause you're sort of like building this bouquet of different experiences. That's ultimately going to make up, you know, who you are and who you're, you know, trying to be. Ah, that was beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And if anyone has any questions for you or wants to learn more about your services or the work you're doing, where's the best place that they can connect with you? So you can, my, my private practice is called Other Side Health. So it's othersidehealth.com. Um, that's a good way. They can email me through there. I'm also on Instagram at other multiple underscores side. You can get that through my website or just find it. And in the new year, as part of my degree, I'm going to be, uh, I've dabbled into YouTube a little bit, but I'm going to be back more on YouTube doing kind of this pre-therapy stuff that we're talking about, just doing experiments in it, um, just giving out stuff that I feel is, uh, it's come up enough times in my practice where it warrants just being given away publicly. And so I'm going to do that in the new year. So if people want to follow along with that, they can do so. That's Other Side Health as well on YouTube. Awesome. Well, I will make sure I link up all that stuff so people can easily access that in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much for coming on, Kev. I'm, I'm so grateful for your time today. You're welcome, Lexi. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this adventure today. If you're interested in learning more about holistic health or have topics that you'd like to hear on the show, connect with me over on Instagram at Quest for Wholeness Podcast. That's all one word, Quest for Wholeness Podcast. I'll see you next time to continue our shared quest for wholeness.